The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning, this is Carol Bossert, and for me it is an extremely rainy and particularly dangerous day on the East Coast as we uh, think about, uh, wonder where uh, Hurricane Joaquin is going to hit. Uh, hopefully it will be uh, uh, blowing itself out, out to sea, but you know, actually what a wonderful uh, reminder, uh, particularly as we talk uh, today about uh, climate change. Not that I am equating this one hurricane with climate change. No, there's a significant difference between weather and climate. However, I think when we do have uh, storms that make us change our plans, uh, weather that uh, we're watching and thinking about, it reminds us how much we are connected to our environment, no matter how many times we sometimes act as if we aren't. And so today, I am following up on the conversation that I, I started with Sarah Sutton last week about museums and their ability uh, as role models uh, to become active participants in sustainable actions. And also, um, several weeks ago, you will remember that I had an opportunity to, to talk with Walter uh, Stavalos, who's the Director of International Relations at the Association of Science and Technology Centers. And Aztec is uh, developing a project on the World Climate Exercise, and you can, of course, get information about that at uh, aztec.org slash resources. And if you want the specific URL, just give me a, a tweet or send me an email, and I'm happy to forward that as well. But today, I am so excited to have with us Becca Economopoulos, uh, I have been following Becca's work for uh, quite a while now. I am I am such a fan. Uh, she is the co-founder and the director of the Natural History Museum, which is a new mobile museum in uh, based in uh, New York City that highlights the socio-political forces that shape nature. And I know Becca is going to tell us more about her project and the work 
that she is doing. And so, Becca, I am just thrilled that you had the time to be with us on the show today. Thanks, Carol. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> Great. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't get, I gave very short shrift to your uh, background in bi- uh, biography, which, of course, is extremely impressive. So if you could just share a little bit uh, for our listeners about your background, it would be great. Sure. My background over the last two decades is working within the environmental and social justice sectors. Um, I've worked with a number of environmental advocacy organizations like Rainforest Action Network and Greenpeace and the UN Environment Program, um, as well as on social justice campaigns with community groups and NGOs alike. Uh, But for the last decade, I've collaborated with um, my now husband, Uh, an artist, as well as uh, a number of other collaborators who come out of exhibit design, uh, political theory, uh, public relations, um, on a a sort of labor of love uh, and a nonprofit that integrates art activism and theory. And it was just a couple of years ago that we birthed our first ongoing project, um, which was to start this new museum. Fabulous. Very, very interesting. And and just as an aside, why did you decide to call it a museum? Uh, well, it, it is a, because it is a museum. <laughs> um, we, you know, we may not have a brick and mortar, um, but there are many um, mobile museums out there. We have a mobile museum bus that takes our programs on the road to underserved communities that don't have access to natural history museums. Um, we offer pop-up exhibitions inside existing institutions. Our inaugural exhibition was last fall at the Queens Museum. Um, and we're interested in uh, using the pedagogical models of traditional museums, exhibitions, field expeditions with scientists and members of the public, educational workshops and public programming um, to tell a sort of people's history of natural history. So one that um, offers visitors the full range of um, causes, impacts, and solutions to um, environmental uh, and climate um, issues. Thank you. That's a, that is a great answer, and there's actually a lot to unpack there. Uh, so you, uh, if I understand correctly, so the, the Natural History Museum is, let's say, a museum without walls? Is yeah, that I think that's a fair assessment. And uh, I love that phrase of yours, the to tell the people's history of natural history uh, that uh, we sometimes, I think, forget in some of our uh, natural history exhibits that we, we don't put the people in there, do we? Yeah, and you know, it is within the purview of natural history museums. They, prevent, uh, they present um, anthropological content. Um, The anthropology department was the first at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, So we're looking at the interplay and relationship between the natural world and um, human culture. And I think that um, natural history museums really inspire awe in the natural world and help us understand ourselves. And so we're encouraging these museums to really respond to the challenges of the Anthropocene Um, understanding that we're in now a globalized context and that we're um, confronting um, pretty massive 
um, issues like climate change that transcend borders. Uh, and it's important that, um, that we present visitors with the stories and the tools that they need to understand this rapidly changing world and shape it for the common good for generations to come. Very, very well put. Well, I, I, uh, there are so many things that, that I want to, uh, to talk to you about, but I think, uh, let's, Let's maybe just step, well, a couple more things about the museum. I, I'm sure our listeners are, are wondering, particularly uh, those museums who are also dealing with, you know, sort of museums without walls and and uh, creating those those programs and activities and even exhibitions without, you know, sort of, as you say, the, the heavy brick and mortar. So where does your funding come from? Uh, our funding comes from foundations and from small dollar donors. So um, this past spring, well, I should take a step back and say that one of the reasons why we launched this museum was we were interested in modeling the museum of the future. And for us, that's one that champions bold action on climate change. Um, and as I said, equips its visitors with the information they need um, and, and on ramps to engage in shaping the world in, in positive directions. So um, it was in in that uh, vein that we teamed up with dozens of the world's top scientists this past spring to release a letter calling on natural history and science museums to cut ties to the fossil fuel industry. Um, and so uh, it, that that is an important piece of um, the work that we do is um, encouraging uh, the museum sector to, um, to, to cut ties to fossil fuels, um, divesting financial holdings, and refusing funding, uh, implementing gifts policies. Um, and in that way, um, you know, uh, it, 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 Pointing, pointing the way to the future, which is um, one that uh, drops the dirty energy infrastructure and embraces new clean energy. That uh, that is very interesting. Since we've sort of jumped ahead in 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 that regard, uh, uh, that. Uh, that model is is one that uh, has been used in um, uh, institutes of higher education universities. Uh, there has been a big uh, push both from scientists and other uh, uh, university faculty requesting their universities to uh, to do that kind of uh, divesting. Uh, there there have been several articles and opinion pieces in um, you know in the Times and the and uh, the the Post and and other articles uh, about the effectiveness of that kind of, uh, of actual uh, divestment. Uh, I remember, um, I believe it was last week, there, there was an article in the Post talking about uh, that perhaps the actual numbers of how many dollars have been divested is a very difficult number to, uh, uh, to pin down, but there certainly is no argument that it is making a statement and an impact uh, within uh, the funding community. So, and Carol, uh, I'll just say, uh, I, I jumped around, but I want to say I brought that up because you asked where our funding comes from. Um, we don't take any funding from the fossil fuel industry. Um, but once we released this scientist letter, I think it really um, struck a chord and resonated with the broader public 
Um, there was this letter, this scientist letter captured headlines around the world. And um, we uh, leveraged that opportunity to call on two of our most iconic natural history museums in the United States, New York's American Museum of Natural History and the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, um, to dismiss their uh, board member and patron, David Koch, um, who is himself a climate denier and a funder of climate science disinformation campaigns, and invited um, the public to sign on to that petition. So it was within less than two months that about 550,000 people signed on. And um, that you know quickly became a base of supporters of our institution. I think people are thirsty to um, sort of reconcile the contradiction between the ideals and the mission of these cherished cultural institutions that they love so much and the, um, the role that they're playing to offer social license to the fossil fuel industry, an industry that continues to spread disinformation and block action on climate change. Um, so it's sort of thanks to kicking off this conversation that we identified an independent revenue stream in donors that allowed us to continue our work. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification and uh, uh, e extension. Um, I guess we could uh, just add that it's my understand me my understanding and correct me if I am wrong here that the California Academy of Natural Sciences is the only museum at this point to have formally uh, committed to this divestment is that correct yeah California Academy of Sciences it was actually <clears throat> just this August that our museum teamed up with 350.org um, to launch a divestment campaign calling on some of our top natural history and science museums to demonstrate leadership and a commitment to sustainability by divesting. It was within a few hours of that announcement um, that uh, Jonathan Foley at California Academy of Sciences released what is one of the strongest statements on divestment that we've seen from an institution to date you know, and he said it seems difficult to reconcile the mission of a public science museum focused on ecology, evolution, and sustainability with the practice of investing fossil fuels. Very, very well put. And just to uh, round out this section of the conversation before we go to break, um, it, so you you uh, uh, contacted both the American Museum of Natural History and the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum. Did you get a response? I got a response. Well, both the Smithsonian and the American Museum of Natural History released statements to um, that suggested that uh, donors and board members in no way influence programming. Um, and then we've also heard from representatives of the museum that you know we're neutral. We're neutral spaces um, for the transmission of ideas. So I know that we have to go to break soon, but I feel like those are sort of. Um, rich points to unpack and I'd love to do that with you. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think 
In fact, um, so that we don't cut this conversation short, I'm going to go to break now, just a little early, and when we come back, we're going to unpack those discussions as Becca promised. Uh, again, thank you for listening today on what is a terribly rainy and weather-filled day for me here in Washington. Um, I want to remind you all that you can always contact me at carol.bossard at verizon.net uh, or contact me through Twitter at at MuseWrite. Uh, happy to always hear from you. And again, if you want any further information from some of the things that Becca is going to be talking about today or uh, the upcoming program through uh, Aztec, please don't hesitate um, to uh, give me a shout out. So with that, we will be back in a moment. Uh, so much more to talk about. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today I am talking with Becca Economopoulos, who is the co-founder and director of the Natural History Museum in New York, which is a new mobile museum uh, highlighting the socio-political forces that shape nature. And right before we went on break, Becca was sharing with us uh, uh, her communication uh, um, with the American Museum of Natural History in New York, as well as the Smithsonian's Natural History, pointing out uh, to them that they have a, a, a board member in particular, and probably uh, others, who are uh, climate change uh, deniers. That seems to be the new term that we're using. And, uh, and also probably are invested in uh, the fossil fuel industry. And Becca, you were just beginning to share with us those responses that you received and some of the thoughts uh, that those generated for you and your group. Yeah, and I want to take a step back and say that um, you know we're we're calling on these museums in particular because we love them so much. You know, these are um, institutions that are more than a century old. They wield a tremendous amount of influence in educating the public, youth in particular, inspiring awe in the natural world. And they really should be the um, first as institutions that communicate science to the public to lead the way. Um, it, it's several decades ago, it was acceptable for cultural institutions to take funding from or invest in the tobacco industry. And that's no longer the case. And we believe that it's only a matter of time that fossil fuel companies are viewed in the same light. So, um, you know, it's museums, uh, to us represent vital societal infrastructure and um, politics are downstream of culture. And we've, we've been experiencing political gridlock, and I feel that to move through that, it's necessary to enlist those institutions that comprise the cultural fabric and infrastructure of society. And there's so much potential if museums were to, um, you know, really embrace this uh, mission of sustainability and the code of ethics that suggests museums um, must preserve the rich and diverse world we've inherited for posterity, um, then I think that this would um, not be a complicated decision. You know, that, uh, that, when you invoke a, a code of ethics, it reminds me of the discussion that uh, Sarah Sutton and I had last week about uh, certainly in the, she identified that in the UK, the museums are in fact including as part of their ethics a, a uh, point of, of being sustainable, acting in sustainable manners, and uh, being models uh, for sustainability and environmental preservation and that she is hopeful that such a movement will be uh, forthcoming here in the United States. And I would, would tend to agree with you, Becca, that should such ethics be part of the, our overall code of ethics, then it would be uh, a simpler perhaps decision. Um, but I'd like to now, uh, one thing that you also mentioned in the last segment where you were, and I, you, where you were saying that uh, uh, you got the response or received a response that museums are neutral spaces. Is that, did I remember that correctly? 
Yeah, that's right. And we're hearing that from a number of institutions. It seems to be the the first line of defense. But, uh, you know, it's our position that really there's no such thing as neutrality. There is always a curatorial point of view. There is always a bias. And is that implicit or is it made explicit? Um, and neutrality is, is really a political category that hides from view alternatives against which it's defined. So, um, you know, I also like to invoke Howard Zinn. I talked about a people's history of natural history, so I might as well. He said that you can't be neutral on a moving train, and um, the fossil fuel industry is driving this train off the end of the earth, and, um, and there are very powerful lobbies um, that seek not only to influence public policy, but by the next election. And within that context, we can only see neutrality as another word for resignation. Um, and we have higher hopes for the museum sector. I love that quote from Howard Zinn. Thank you for uh, bringing that in. Um, uh, just sort of along along those those lines, and you and I were sort of beginning to talk about that over the the break. One of the other uh, responses to the uh, to this discussion, uh, and I I have heard this from uh, museum professionals uh, and colleagues as as well that um, climate change is a real downer uh, and we don't want to you know we don't want to fr uh, frighten people or turn them away or make them feel sad uh, and so we want our exhibitions I guess to be happy and perky and and full of uh, cute little stuffed animals uh, can you help us help me understand that those comments where they're coming from and and what your your uh, response is well, you know, species extinction is a real downer, but uh, that didn't stop zoos over the last few decades of really shifting their programming to embrace a conservation message and engage in conservation campaigns and field work and to provide on-ramps for their visitors to plug in as well. So you encounter this conservation message um, really an advocacy message in the context of exhibits, right? They're not just a repository for exotic animals. Um, they're a way of teaching people about the natural world and our relationship to it and the agency that we have when we act collectively to um, shape the natural world um, or in preserve it for posterity. Uh, thank you. I, th I think that's very clear. And I I just got to, I've got to share my, my opinion on, on this as well. It's something that has continued and increasingly disturbs me within my, within a field that I have devoted my career and, and continue to love very much. And that is when we think about things that, uh, when we say, oh, it's a downer, oh, it will be sad, it, you know, in underneath that is sort of a either a distrust or a disrespect for the audiences that yeah. are coming to our institutions uh, you know there are tough subjects uh, years and years ago a very good friend of mine Janet Kamian uh, created uh, an exhibition at the Boston Children's Museum about death and dying uh, there, and there is no greater downer but her point was that children 
encounter it all the time and so that the museum is a space where they can can talk about those things and uh, process them so I I am saddened that uh, in some ways we've moved away uh, from uh, being responsible and respecting our our audiences uh, to the point that we know that they can hold complex ideas in their in their minds and have uh, have uh, a great discourse about them I, yeah, thank you for saying that. I think that's so true. And, um, you know, I'd also say that uh, the problems that we face as a society are scary. Um, and it's very easy to duck your head in the sand. And I think that people are thirsty for a way through, for a theory of change or some narrative that they can align with um, that that gives them agency within this context. So we'd suggest that in this time of profound environmental disruption, it's not enough for museums just to accept the scientific consensus on human-caused climate change. We need museums to take a stand to call out the biggest polluters and obstructionists to action and offer uh, ways for visitors to engage and, um, and, and shift the political calculus here. Um, you don't have to talk about politics directly in your programming, but, um, but I think you know politics are a part of our culture and they are very much influencing and affecting the natural world. So if you're to truly understand climate change, the causes and the solutions, this is part of the story that you tell. Yes. And so with that, let's shift a little bit. Not only uh, do you talk the talk, you walk the walk, and uh, you... Uh, an, one traveling exhibition uh, that I saw was at last uh, year's uh, American Alliance of Museums uh, uh, conference in uh, Atlanta. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that uh, exhibition? Sure. Um, we mounted an exhibition at the museum convention on fossil fuel industry greenwashing in science museums. Um, in this particular exhibition, I think you see the imprint of our backgrounds in art um, and are influenced by uh, the genre of institutional critique art as represented by artists like Hans Hacke and Fred Wilson and Andrea Fraser. And I say this because what we ended up presenting was um, we recreated installations from New York's American Museum of Natural History and augmented those dioramas with previously excluded sociopolitical content. Um, so in this case, uh, they were dioramas about um, climate change largely, and um, we inserted uh, David Koch or Koch Industries, so the museum's patron and board member, into those um, displays. In general, that's something that, in addition to providing our own sort of traveling exhibits and pop-up exhibitions and programs, we do tours of traditional natural history museums with scientists, with theorists, with museum studies uh, pro professionals, and so on, um, to augment static displays of nature with um, contemporary context and sort of activating them as spaces to tell um, uh, more, um, uh, you know, more dynamic uh, and contemporary stories. That's very interesting. It's a it's a new approach to museum hack, uh, a, a 
program that's going on in in New York uh, has that's right. Yeah, uh, where you can. I it's both at the Natural History Museum and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, sort of an alternative uh, to the traditional uh, museum presented uh, materials. And so, uh, so you're doing the the same thing in in uh, so at at uh, the Museum of American History. That's right, and you know, and I want to say while we were recreating installations from that institution at the museum convention, you know, we had some very positive conversations with folks from the American Museum of Natural History. And, you know, in in our minds, this example of one of the biggest funders of climate science disinformation um, is, uh, you know, and, and a climate denier is in a leadership position at a science institution. Um, that, that to us was probably one of the more egregious examples that enabled us to um, kick off this conversation that I think has been happening for a long time behind closed doors within the sector, but bring um, greater public scrutiny and urgency um, to that conversation. Um, But I want to go back to something that we touched on earlier, which is the idea that sponsors or board members don't influence programming. And um, I'm just not convinced of that. Um, I believe that strings don't need to be visible to make an impact when your $30 million donor um, his beliefs and politics are well known. Um, that that affects the conversation in the room, and self censorship certainly does happen in our museums um, as a result of uh, sponsors and funding. And you know that's 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 natural. Where you get your funding influences your programming. Um, but beyond that, I would suggest. Um, that if we are to take that at face value, that there is absolutely no influence um, on programming, um, these ties still should not be there because they affect the perception um, on the part of the public um, uh, and and compromise um, the integrity of the institution. Um, And and that is um, really like our institution's currency is the integrity um, that we offer. And um, museums, in particular natural history museums, are some of the most trusted sources of um, information. So uh, that is also from the code of ethics, that museums must take affirmative steps to maintain their integrity so as to warrant public confidence um, in the tradition of public service. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. So um, it sounds as if your response uh, to the traveling exhibition at AAM uh, uh, engendered a number of, uh, of thoughtful conversations, one-on-one conversations with, with individual museum professionals. Uh, did you get any uh, pushback, any negative pushback? To be honest, not so much. We were pretty overwhelmed by how many people either confided that they were dealing with issues of self-censorship within their institutions um, or just said it was sort of a breath of relief. I think people go into the museum sector not because they're in it for the money, but because they really believe in the public service that um, they're providing in these uh, in the educational mission of the institution and um, in the preservation of our collective heritage. 
And, um, and so largely we found a lot of folks here very supportive. And one thing, one outcome from that convention was that we struck up relationships with some folks who work at natural history museums affiliated with universities um, that were interested in hosting um, traveling exhibits as pop-up exhibitions. Um, so we've been researching and developing a new traveling exhibit called What Do Fossil Fuels Fuel? Um, that sort of looks at the fossil fuel ecosystem as uh, interrelated feedback loops of encompassing energy, society, economics, and culture. Fascinating. And when will that exhibition be, uh, be ready to travel? We're going to be teasing a little bit of it in a couple of weeks at the Association of Science and Technology Center's uh, annual convention in Montreal. And then um, we'll be launching it in Houston next spring. Fabulous, wonderful! What a what a great opportunity, and what uh, uh, is truly evidenced of how a museum can make a significant impact uh, without having to have a building created by a very famous architect. Not that I don't love architecture, but it does not need to be the first step. Uh, and I think that you are sharing, showing that way, uh, as many other museums are. Uh, and so thank you, Becca. Thank you very much for your work. We are going to take another short break. And when we come back, some of uh, the uh, Museum of Natural Histories and Becca's other initiatives uh, moving forward. Again, uh, thank you, all my listeners, uh, uh, for your continued support of this program. And uh, remember to drop me a line anytime you've got a thought or a guest or an issue that you think we need to be uh, discussing on this program about museums for museum professionals. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. 
Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today I've been having a lively and fabulous conversation with Becca Economopoulos, who is the co-founder and director of the Natural History Museum, a new mobile museum that highlights uh, social political forces that shape nature. Uh, they are doing fabulous work, had a, had a really interesting exhibit at the American Alliance of Museums Conference, and in case you missed it, uh, don't worry, they are going to be at the Association of Science and Technology uh, Conference, which will be held in, I think, two weeks uh, up in Montreal. Uh, That will be a wonderful opportunity to look at their new display, uh, as well as talk to them individually and in groups. That also, uh, there will be uh, some interesting um, presentations going on. Uh, Walter Stavalos is really spearheading uh, some world-climate climate change exercises uh, and and ways that science centers can engage in the issues of climate uh, change and in, involve their audiences. And uh, I will be very interested, and I hope you all ask questions about uh, this issue of neutrality. Uh, maybe we need to stop, stop calling uh, museum spaces neutral spaces, but maybe we could start calling them safe spaces for conversation. So that's just uh, one suggestion I have. Um, But Becca, let's uh, talk a little bit more about your other initiatives. Sure. Um, Well, we do everything that traditional natural history museums do. We offer exhibitions and expeditions and tours and workshops, um, but make a point to highlight not just the sociopolitical forces that shape nature, but those that are excluded from view within traditional natural history museums. And so, you know, we were sort of interested in interrogating this space of... um, well, interrogating the politics of display. Because natural history museums um, with uh, hundreds of thousands of visitors a year um, have a lot of influence in um, educating people about the natural world and about environmental issues, um, we're inviting visitors to take the perspective of museum anthropologists attuned to the social and political forces that are inseparable from the natural world. So those that, um, you know, shape the atmospheric climate on Earth, but also the um, political and funding and, um, you know, curatorial climate within natural history museums themselves. Um, 
I'm not sure I exactly understand what you mean by that. Um, how can uh, how how can museum visitors be social anthropologists? Well, um, you know, the Natural History Museum looks at the way that nature appears, and thus we include other natural history museums as part of our view of nature. Um, and so we're, uh, you know, through tours, through um, critical reviews of exhibitions and partnership with museum studies programs and students, um, we're sort of interested in looking at um, what is included and what is excluded from exhibitions. So if I'm to look at a diorama of a bear, am I looking at a bear or a diorama of a bear? Right. Um, and is there, uh, you know, there were choices when in, that went into what to include in that display and what not to ex uh, what not to include. And then is there a politics to those choices? So um, this is a kind of inquiry that encourages people to sort of um, think about how issues are framed or represented. And that's a valuable um, skill in terms of visual literacy. Um, that uh, we believe, um, you know, youth and the public should be educated in. That is a very, very interesting uh, take. I mean, certainly uh, we hear a lot about uh, visual uh, literacy in, um, say, art, uh, you know, all sorts of, of programs about how to look at art, that there's no right way of looking at art, but certainly uh, some uh, critical skills and in, in perhaps questions to ask, you know, why did the artist include this? Why didn't she include that? Uh, it sounds as if you are taking your, uh, your background in art and applying it not only to science, but to uh, museums that present uh, science and natural phenomena. What an interesting take. Yeah, well, I was surprised that there wasn't more of this out there, to be honest. I mean, we are um, trained as cultural theorists or media theorists to de deconstruct any form of media, newspapers, television, film. There's a lot of um, critical reviews of art exhibitions, but it was hard to find um, essays or reviews of exhibitions within natural history and science museums. Um, and to me, that isn't a kind of review that says this is good, this is bad, as much as um, one that sort of deconstructs um, the exhibition and inquires into, um, you know, what stories are told and what stories aren't told. Um, ultimately, there's, there's a lot of power to um, what is uh, what is represented. It sort of normalizes um, a, a set of understandings. Um, and we felt like it's, it's worthwhile to dig into that. And we were also surprised to learn that most exhibitions are not authored in museums. So there's no way of um, really knowing who conducted the research, um, who, you know, who sponsored it. Um, but ultimately, if we're to suggest that um, museums need to include more sociopolitical content in their presentation of scientific issues, um, then it's important to know um, what are the forces that are shaping those decisions. 
I think that this is fascinating, and I, I will admit on the air to a conversation that you and I had several weeks ago, and, and, and you brought up these, these, uh, these very same points, and I said, oh, well, there's a, a great deal about uh, you know, exhibition evaluation and review, and, and I even sent you a few things, and, but to be honest, the more I thought about it and went back and reviewed some of these materials, uh, there, there are, of course, some exceptions. But um, the focus on, evalu- on, uh, on exhibition evaluation seems to be relatively internal. We're looking at was the exhibition successful in communicating the big idea or the main message uh, to, to the audience, uh, which is in- incredibly important, uh, and all sorts of other technical aspects of the, uh, of the exhibit. But uh, perhaps we have gotten away a little bit from the, uh, the scholarship and I think that's the point that you are are trying to uh, to make. And I think that it's a valid, a very valid criticism that has gotten me thinking a lot more about my own practice. Yeah, we would absolutely love to partner with um, museum studies programs and universities. And um, can imagine a course where students go into a local um, natural history or science museum and um, develop these reviews. Uh, and you know, part, partnering with scholars um, to you know produce produce a book um, in this way because you know I think I think the fossil fuel industry understands um, in sponsoring exhibitions that they're that that's an integral piece of their public relations strategy, right? And that um, museological visualization um, techniques are also public relations techniques, right? They sell a perspective on the world. Museums offer perspectives on nature. And is that one that understands nature as something to chop up and sell off to the highest bidder? Or is it one that understands nature as a commons for all of us and for generations to come? Very. Uh, that's, that is uh, in, incredibly insightful and, uh, you know, a, a bit disturbing. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I think, one of the, the challenges that we have in today's society as well. It's something that I've, I've talked with several uh, guests on this program uh, who are very involved in exhibition development as well as uh, teaching uh, exhibit development ex- uh, and program development uh, to students, to museum studies students, it is that we still tend to look at exhibitions, A, as a product that we create, sort of similar to what uh, you know, uh, uh, art museums created in, in, in uh, making catalogs, museum uh, exhibition catalogs. Um, and we tend to look at them as primary information carriers. You know, they, they are telling us facts and figures and, as you say, sort of a perspective of the way to look at nature uh, as opposed to perhaps uh, giving voice to the audience itself. Does that make, uh, is that sort of what you're talking about as well? Certainly. I mean, one thing that um, we're very excited about is using our museum and traditional natural history museums as platforms to 
amplify climate justice narratives um, and campaigns. So those communities that are most impacted by the climate crisis, um, what's happening in those places and how can, how, how can we engage in those struggles? Um, as I said before, it's not enough to just embrace anthropogenic global warming. Some people and some entities are more responsible than others. You know, are we truly going to face, uh, um, you know, the sixth mass extinction and potentially the extinction of um, our own species um, without having those institutions charged with explaining what's happening, not um, not include all the information we really know, um, all the information we need um, in, in order to um, address the climate crisis. You know, and, and it uh, circling back to something that we talked about uh, a little earlier in the last couple of minutes here, I, I don't want to end this conversation without saying, you know, the exhibitions or programs about climate change don't need to be scary because we don't need to end it right at uh, an apocryphal moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, there are many things that we can talk about in terms of empowering people not only to think about the social political issues, but even as uh, going back to what Sarah Sutton was talking about uh, last week, the idea of resilience. So yeah. what So what are we going to do? What can we do? Uh, uh, where, where should be, we be putting our energies and our money? And uh, there are many things that we can do as individuals and uh, collectively uh, to help us live uh, in a world that is changing. Yeah, and I would suggest that, you know, it, what's scary is when you read the headlines about climate change and then you walk into a climate change exhibition or biodiversity exhibition that tells you to recycle or conserve energy. You know, it's these individual prescriptions versus collective action that people are not stupid. There's like, there, there isn't a strong theory of change there and that feels scary um, and, and overwhelming. So I think we have to do a better job at pointing the way to real solutions. And, you know, climate change is already here. It's, it's not going away. Um, so part of that story is talking about, um, what we, what we do in light of that. Are we stepping on each other's heads on, you know, trying to get on the life raft? Are we pulling our, you know, are, are we pulling one another up, um, and really, um, talking about collective, uh, responses to climate change, equitable, um, and, uh, you know, modeling, what does it mean to be human in the Anthropocene? That's, uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yes, it is pretty scary if you walk in, if you walk out of an exhibit believing that the entire issue rests on your shoulders and, and whether you uh, buy a, uh, a plastic water bottle or not, not to say that there aren't a whole lot of things to be said for not buying plastic water bottles, but it's not just going to be me, it's going to be everybody uh, working together. And if uh, museums are places that uh, are safe, uh, where we we can bring community together in real time, then this issue of uh, using exhibitions and programs to help build tools for collective action seems to be an, an appropriate thing. Uh, Becca, thank you so very, very much for being on the show today. Uh, congratulations on the work that uh, you and others are doing, and uh, I hope to see you in Montreal in a couple of weeks at the Association Science and 
technology uh, conference, and I'm sure Walter Stavros and others will um, be making your acquaintance as well. Thank you so much, Carol. It's been a pleasure. And we will be back next week. Next week is uh, the two-year anniversary of museum life, and I'll be doing a little bit of a retrospective, not just because you can hear me talk for an hour, which may, uh, but that uh, we can thread out and tease out some of the themes that have emerged over the last couple of years with uh, fabulous, fabulous guests and uh, listeners uh, uh, engaged in uh, conversation. And so thank you uh, very much. It's been very humbling. Uh, I look forward to another uh, third year uh, bringing you this program. And until then, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.